The thing that surprised me the most were the number of Vermonters who said some version of, I want to be able to talk to my neighbors again. That even a few years ago, I felt like I could talk to my neighbor even though they were a Republican, or I could talk to my neighbor even though they were a Democrat. And now they feel like something, some community sense of connection has been shattered by um, four years of the Trump administration and then the January uh, 6th insurrection. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Becca Ballant is on the cusp of making history. On August 9th, Ballant decisively won the Democratic primary for Vermont's at-large U.S. House seat, defeating Lieutenant Governor Molly Gray by a margin of 24 points. If she wins the general election in November, Ballant will become the first woman and the first openly LGBTQ person to represent Vermont in the U.S. Congress. Vermont is the only state that has never elected a woman to Congress. Becca Ballant was born in a U.S. Army hospital in Germany where her father was stationed and grew up in upstate New York. She earned a bachelor's degree from Smith College and received a master's in education from Harvard. She later received a master's in history from UMass. She came to Vermont in the 1990s to be a rock climbing instructor at the Farm and Wilderness Camp in Plymouth, Vermont, where she met her future wife, attorney Elizabeth Wall. Ballant went on to become a middle school teacher and in 2014 was elected state senator from Wyndham County. She served as Senate Majority Leader and is currently the Senate President Pro Tem. She, her wife, and their two children live in Brattleboro. Senate President Pro Tem Becca Ballant, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much, David. It's always great to talk with you. On election night, you told your supporters, it's finally our time. What did you mean? I was speaking about um, sort of the, the pent-up frustration of, of so many uh, Vermonters who have wanted to see a woman in Congress and also um, thinking about the LGBTQ community across the state and representation, but also just about regular people. Um, you know, I really talked a lot with Vermonters on the campaign trail about how important it is, given the level of dysfunction in Washington to make sure that we have people who uh, aren't aren't jaded, aren't part of the system, so to speak, and just want to go and do good work on behalf of, of Vermonters. So there was a lot wrapped up in that. Um, but I heard time and time again, as I talked to people, how nice it was for them to feel like they understood that I was someone who came up as a teacher and understood the struggles of regular families in Vermont. And so there was a lot tied up in that. It was, as you can imagine, it was a lot of emotion uh, for me that night. Um, and of course, history making, but also just on a personal level, feeling so proud of the work that um, my team and, and all our supporters had done. A lot is being written right now. And as you just alluded to, uh, in terms of the history making dimension, of your candidacy. And we should remind listeners, you have not won the general election. You have exactly. won the primary. You have an election yes. yet to go. Does the weight of the history making dimension of this 
what does that feel like? Does it weigh on you? Is there a certain, you know, burden of it as well? There's a jumble of emotions and I am feeling, um, yes, the weight of, of that, but more, I think it's about me wanting to do a really good job on behalf of Vermonters on behalf of my constituents. And, you know, I think when you are an elected official, you have this incredible sense of responsibility to um, do your job well. And that weight I'm feeling probably more than anything. And in terms of the, the potential history um, making dynamic of this, the way that I'm thinking about it is I want to make it easier for whoever's coming up behind me, whether it is a woman, whether it is a person of color, whether it's a queer person, whether it is someone from a working class background, I want to do whatever I can to make it easier for that person to run. So that's that's sort of the weight and responsibility that I feel right now. I know the primary is over, but this is the first major interview you've done since the primary uh, in a long form interview. So a couple of quick questions. You won the primary by 24 percentage points. Um, I often think that is more than a win. It is a statement. What do you think the statement is from Vermont voters? Yeah, um, you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot because, as I said on election night, I, I did think it would be closer um, because it was felt like a very competitive race. But the numbers match sort of what we had been feeling internally throughout the campaign. So our very first internal poll showed us up by, by almost 20 points. And what we heard time and time again was people wanted somebody with experience, really uh, working with other people to get hard work done. And I did have a record of accomplishment in the in the Senate, but also I think it really resonated with people that I was a teacher and had spent time working in, you know, four different rural public schools and understood sort of the struggle struggles of families. So those things I know I heard back in real time from voters. And the other thing that I heard time and time again was, we are so glad that you're running a positive campaign, that you, the joy of your love of people, the joy of your staff and the work that they're doing on behalf of Vermonters, um, your, your real concentration on being both courageous and kind. I can't tell you, David, how many people at events, uh, how many people will come up to me and say, that is exactly what I'm feeling right now, that I need to be more courageous, that I need to be more kind. People are tired of being angry People are tired of being fearful. And we heard that time and time again that um, literally people would say to me, I'm so, so tired of being distrustful of my neighbors. I want to be able to talk to my neighbors again. And, and me being able to say, look, I've got uh, Republicans, Democrats, progressives, independents, non-voters um, supporting me in this campaign. I think people really needed to feel that sense of we can do things differently. We have to do things differently in the way that we talk to one another. And, you know, I, I think it's important to, to name too that as much as people 
wanted that message, resonated with that message, they were also balancing this. They wanted to make sure that I wasn't naive, right? That I knew what I was getting into. And I always said to them, hey, you can't, you can't be a woman or a queer pe person in this nation and be naive because there are times when you are just beat down all the time. So for me, it's not about naivete. It's about we as a nation know that if we continue on this path of, of fear mongering, where it's gonna end up because we have examples in history. And so that's what I think this vote was about. It was about the experience. It was about the style of the campaign. It was about also who I am as a person and what I brought to the table. And I'm just so, I'm so proud of my team. And I was doing thank you calls all day yesterday. And one of the things that I said to all of my supporters that I talked to yesterday was people who've never run for office or have never worked campaign don't fully appreciate how much of a team effort it is, right? Like my name's on the ballot, my name and face are in the commercials, but it's thousands of people working together to get something like this done. And that is super exciting that we were able to mobilize so many people here in Vermont on the campaign. A pivotal moment in the campaign came in May when Senator Keisha Rahm Hinsdale withdrew and backed you. Tell us the backstory of that decision. When did you and Senator Rahm Hinsdale begin discussing the possibility of her withdrawal and your endorsement and her endorsement? Well, so David, I think you're gonna be surprised to hear that um, my team actually didn't have any inkling of that until the day that um, the deadline came for getting names on the ballot. And so we were getting ready for a forum. I believe it was in Shelburne. And I got a message from uh, Keisha, who is a friend. And she sent me a text and said, hey, I'd love to, I'd love to chat today. And I said, yeah, great. You know, how about I call you in 45 minutes? Um, and she said, no, 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 I want to do it in person. And, um, you know, Natalie had heard, my campaign manager had heard from her campaign manager. And of course, like, we're in the midst of a heated campaign, right? So I said to Natalie, oh my gosh, like, what do they have on us, right? Like, like, is this a, like, tipping tip their ace card? And Natalie's like, I don't know, I'm going to call their campaign manager. And then it was clear that she wanted to just have an in-person sit down at her house and talk about the race. And uh, we got there and there were a couple other people in the room, um, you know, people close to Keisha. And we just talked about the, the state of the race and, and she felt uh, in looking at, um, you know, where her campaign was in terms of momentum, in terms of dollars, where we were. Um, she had made, I think, a, a a very difficult decision. It's not easy to, to decide uh, to drop out and pivot. And I think she had had a lot of really, you know, intense conversations with her family and with the, the team. And it seemed like it crystallized for her in that previous 24 hours that she actually wanted to go back to the state Senate. She felt like she had work to do there. There were um, about 10 senators who had decided to retire and there was a real need for somebody who, who understood more of how the legislature worked. So it all happened so quickly. And she said, so I'm gonna drop out, I'm gonna endorse you and I wanna get on the state ballot. And so we actually sent our, our campaign team out in the field to help her gather the signatures to get on this, the state ballot. And so it happened in just a couple hours. And then, um, you know, she 
had some really good conversations with my campaign manager about how she wanted to be like it was her story to tell and so she wanted to uh, do it on you know tv and with us together and so it was a whirlwind day uh, when we woke up that morning we had no idea what what she'd been thinking about and by the end of the day we had that really beautiful piece uh um on on the tv news with us standing together by the lake and you know for me it was such a great uh model for politicians generally about how we can do this. We don't need to tear each other down. We don't need to, to eat our own. And for her to stand with me and, and for, for me, uh, you know, to, to see her, her graciousness in doing that. And then to have her say to me, then uh, the next day or maybe a couple of days later, she said, you know, at an event, I learned from Becca that sometimes you have to be a fighter Sometimes you have to be a defender and sometimes you have to be a peacemaker. And it felt so wonderful for me to see that she saw the work that I had been trying to do in the, in the state Senate. So, so that's sort of the inside scoop. I feel like that's, that's what I can tell you. There are certainly some private moments of conversation, you know, between us, but that's, those are the edges of it. And that was, I think, a time when my team felt like this is a game changer for us. And that do you think really you felt like, do yeah. you think you would have won without her had she not pulled out? Or Well, it's always hard to say. I will tell you, I do feel like I had assembled the best campaign team. And so my field team was phenomenal. My, you know, the people working for me and my surrogates um, were phenomenal. And so I do think in the end, we would have eked out a win, but it would have been much more challenging. Obviously, there were so many voters who told us that they were, you know, trying to decide between between the two of us. And so we felt like that day really kicked, started the momentum that carried us through. And we just kept building and building and building after that. In quick succession, a lot of her donors or endorsers came to us. Um, and yeah, it just, it was a tremendous day for all of us. And I think we felt really good about how that all unfolded. It, um, you know, Bill McKibben wrote a piece about this in The Nation shortly after that. saying that this was a model, particularly for progressive candidates. And, I, you know, I will just say this never happens. You know, it, right. we have no. here in, in New England the example of uh, in Maine, uh, Paul, Paul LePage, a very extremist right wing governor, won twice because they were three way races. And uh, he never would have won yeah. had one of those candidates backed out. They were both on the liberal side, or at least to the left of him. So yeah. even in New England, we can see how these three ways are are wildly unpredictable, and you can have people who otherwise wouldn't win win. Um, yes. So it's enough about the primary, but I I couldn't go on without just reflecting on that moment in the campaign. Yeah. You introduced us in your campaign to your grandfather, Leo Ballant, um, who died in the Holocaust. Tell us about how your grandfather's experience affected you and your family growing up and, and how it informs your work today. I was saying to one of my staffers, you know, you, when you tell a family story on a campaign, don't fully anticipate how much you will need to talk about it, right, over and over again. And um, I think 
for me, the pieces that I want voters to understand is that, so Leopold was incarcerated at Mount Housing concentration camp in Austria. And I have traveled there. I've seen the town, I've seen the, the camp where he was. And um, for me, as a, I went there in high school and to see how close the camps were, how close the, um, all, the, all the horrors that were happening, how close they were to the town and how that is you know, true across Europe, right? And so just like understanding how do people integrate these horrors into everyday life. And the pieces of the story that always resonated with me the deepest were that, so they were on a, a forced march from the camp in the waning days of the war as the Nazis are trying to outrun the allies. And he stayed behind on part of the walk to try to help another prisoner who'd fallen behind. And they were warned that if they didn't catch up, they would be, you know, they would be punished. And he, you know, he put his arm, the man's arm around him and carried him for, for a little ways. And then they were both, both shot to death. And they never recovered the bodies. The bodies were thrown into the Danube River. And, you know, I tell this in this graphic way because for me, knowing what that, those two things, one that they, my, my grandmother never got to bury her husband. There is no place to go to, you know, to, to honor him. And also that we had eyewitnesses uh, who saw it happen, who were able to get the the story to to my grandmother after after the war. And for me, that's always been a story of how does someone continue to be humane even in the midst of depravity, right? How did he have the strength to make that decision regardless of what was gonna happen to him to try to help this man and alleviate his suffering? And I fixated on that for a lot of my life of like, how did he have the strength to do that? And the way that I've come to understand it in, in my life is that that is actually the wrong question to ask myself, that very few of us will be faced with such a stark choice in our lives. That the real question is, do we have the strength day in and day out to be kind to people, to be humane to people, even when they are um, disagreeing with us politically, even when they maybe are treating us um, disrespectfully. And so that is something that has really guided me, especially, um, I think since I, around since I turned 40, this sense of how do I live that viewpoint and, and, and really embody that in my own life. And I don't always make, you know, I don't always hit the mark, right? Sometimes I'm, I'm a jerk, right? Just like anyone else. But I try to lead with a sense of deep compassion that when somebody is saying horrible about me or someone that I love, sort of what is underneath it? What is their hurt? And how do I continue to show up as someone with deep humanity, even in those hard moments? And so for me, that really is part of the campaign of leading with both courage and kindness is about not giving in to those those basic human emotions of fear and anger and 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 hate frankly so have you received have you been threatened particularly as your profile raises uh, mm -hmm. not just in vermont but outside of vermont mm -hmm. um, have you received threats that go beyond name calling 
you know, there was one uh, email that, that came to both me and Senator Rom Hinsdale when we were in the state Senate that um, last year. Um, that was from a, a white nationalist in New Hampshire uh, targeting us for, for her because she is a woman of color and also of Jewish descent and me as a gay person of Jewish descent. And that was the first really direct one that I got. Um, and we turned it over to you know the, the Capitol Police, but I don't read my social media comments unless they're positive. My team flags for me, you know, positive things to read. I know there's hate out there, certainly when we passed the, um, you know, something closer to home here, when we were passing the reproductive rights bills here in Vermont, we all got called horrible, horrible names. And, you know, and I think one of the most disturbing comments that I got repeated with Lee was likening my championing of reproductive rights to me being a Nazi, right? So it's just like this, this twisting of history and, and of experience. And so I know as my profile raises um, that there will be more vitriol and anger coming my way. And I actually was thinking this morning about how I want to reach out to some folks in Congress that you know, true to myself, how to stay true to my values, even when that onslaught of, of hate and anger comes. Because I'm certain there are people, uh, certainly women of color, uh, men of color in, in Congress who are getting that on the regular. So, um, Well, let me ask about that. Yeah. Um, if you were elected to Congress, 147 Republican members of Congress voted to overturn the election results of 2020. And if elected, you'll be serving alongside many of them. Uh, these include people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, Scott Perry, who seem to see a primary part of their job to be provocateurs and trolls. Right. Yeah. How do you find common ground with them? Well, it's interesting. I talked with um, Congressman Welch and a couple other folks, uh, Congresswoman Sharice Davids, um, David Cicilline. I've gotten close to, to some members of Congress over the last six months and, and people have been very kind and, and talking with, with me about some of this stuff. And what they said was there are definitely people that you don't find common ground with, that you're not, you know, it, you know, it's sort of the shorthand is don't waste time on those people who are there for, for ego or to be provocateurs, but that there are people on the other side of the aisle that are trying to do good work on behalf of their constituents back home. And, and it's always about trying to find the overlap, whether it's on agricultural issues or small town life, or you know, how do we have a green economy that works for a rural area? That being said, you know, Congressman Welch did say to me, he's like, Becca, I won't lie to you. Like the way things are now is not the way it is even 10 years ago. And that you have to be very selective about how you spend your time. And I'm very curious, as I know so many of us are, about what's going to happen in the midterms. I'm feeling really hopeful that we're going to have uh, a strong showing of Democrats in the midterms because of what has happened with the Dobbs decision. Certainly was surprised by what happened in, in Kansas, pleasantly surprised. Um, but 
I'm someone who watches and learns. That's how I was able to be effective in the state Senate. You come in, you figure out who's got, you know, who's got hard power, who's got soft power, how are decisions being made? Who are those people that you need to build relationship with to get work done? And I want to be effective. I don't want to be part of a, an ego driven, you know, narrative about me and Congress, who I am. This is about Vermonters. I've been very clear about that um, with Vermonters who, who are like, well, so how are you going to lead? I was like, I'm going to lead in a way that's effective. And the way that I'm going to do that is to watch and learn for the first few months and build a network of people who can help guide me, other people who've been effective. And I'm so grateful that I'm gonna be coming in after both Congressman Welch and Senator Sanders, both of whom served in the House and can, can help me build those relationships as well. So right off the bat, it does not take much imagination to anticipate that many of your colleagues will have won on the basis of running as election deniers. And you are going yeah. to be in committee with people who deny the reality of the 2020 mm -hmm. election. Yeah. How do you respond to to a to a colleague when they raise that as a premise of a statement or question that they may have in a public forum? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to be about um, constantly bringing folks back to reality without, for me, it's about not even giving in to the anger or the vitriol, because that's what they want, right? They want to increase the level of engagement to a point where it's just two people yelling at each other. But if you are not willing to do that and you are just you know, able to dismiss you know, out of hand, like we know that's not true, these are the facts, and just continue to do that. I'm not saying that that's gonna be able to turn people around. I'm really thinking about how do you use this position to communicate outside of that room, right? That if somebody is going to try to overturn norms in such um, a grotesque way, how do we bring it back into alignment? Because, you know, I read that really interesting article the other day, David, I don't know if you saw it. It was, I can't remember if it was in the Washington Post or the New York Times. It was an op-ed about how some Trump voters actually are starting to think differently now based on the fact that he, uh, that President Trump took classified documents out of the White House is opening up a crack that maybe he's not the man that he was. And so for me, it's always about looking at those tiny shifts in perception. We don't like to admit that we're wrong. None of us, I don't care, like what's your political affiliation? Nobody wants to admit that they're wrong. It's very hard in the human condition. And so for me, I really, I want to be so direct and level-headed and think about how am I communicating, not just with my colleagues, but for people outside of that room because honestly, I think most Americans are not happy with where we're at, regardless of political affiliation. Senator Ballant, you just returned from a break after the primary to Wyoming. And many people may not know you have a connection to Wyoming. So I should let you explain what your family connection is to Wyoming. But also, you know, Wyoming has been in the news a lot in the last two weeks as the home mm -hmm. of Congresswoman Liz Cheney who has had a very high profile as the vice chair of the January 6th committee. Uh, so tell us about your Wyoming connection and what you heard in your conversations there that surprised you. So my uh, wife is from Wyoming. She grew up in a, a relatively small town in Wyoming. And it is um, interesting to spend time 
in Vermont and in Wyoming, they are very similar in many ways. They are very community-minded. They are focused on helping your neighbors. And I actually lived out there for a while when um, Elizabeth was clerking for, for a federal judge and we lived for a while in Casper, Wyoming. So I, I know Wyoming pretty well. And it is, of course, politically very, very different. And this um, most recent visit that we had there, the subject of um, Liz Cheney's defeat in the primary, it just, you know, it just happened just a couple of days ago. And my uh, my family, they're, they're Wyoming's and Democrat, uh, you know, they're, they're Democrats there. And it is like being a, a, a fish out of water in some ways. Um, but the, my family and extended family all, uh, registered as Republicans, they switched their party affiliation so that they could vote for Liz Cheney in the primary because they wanted somebody who was not an election denier. And Republicans um, always win the federal elections in, in Wyoming. And they were uh, pretty devastated that uh, Representative Cheney lost not just um, you know, not just that she lost, but that she she was uh, very much um, lost in a, in a landslide, and she they felt lost like by that... thirty eight points. Exactly, yeah. exactly, and and you know, I want to be really clear here. Like these are people who never ever <laughs> have supported Liz Cheney, disagree with her on just about every other policy, uh, as do I, um, and and so it is the level. Um, of, of governmental dysfunction right now that you've got, you know, hardcore Democrats voting for Liz Cheney because she believes in the constitution, right? And it is a, um, it's an important bar, but it's a low bar for an elected official. And so it's been, you know, interesting to watch my, my relatives who love the West, love, uh, you know, the Western um, landscape and sensibility. And it's, you know, sort of, live and let live, do your own thing. Um, and this election defeat by Liz Cheney has really shaken them. And they just don't know if they can make a life out there anymore, if they are not able to find common ground with neighbors around issues as, you know, as direct as, you know, constitutional rights and upholding fair elections. Um, yeah, it's really shaken them to their core. I hadn't quite seen them in that state yeah why is this such a gut check um they knew i mean liz cheney votes with trump 93 percent of the time so what is it that has so unsettled them i guess is the question they knew they were in a political minority right but why is it so unsettling to the point of thinking they need to leave and i i ask that because i think this is going on all around the country you know we are now yes. living in a country where half of the states have yeah. outlawed abortion rights and right. the country is splitting along uh, the lines of, you know, where women have rights and where they don't. Right. And, and so I, I can, I'll do my best to sort of convey how they're feeling. Uh, and I'm sure I'll, I'll get some of the nuance wrong. I think for them, it's this sense of if we can't even agree on what it means to have a president who is not just an election denier, but is encouraging other people 
to deny any election outcomes that aren't um, in line with, with what they want, then how are we any different from autocrats around the globe? How are we any different from any other authoritarian regime? And when you have um, allies of Trump that are looking to Viktor Orban in Hungary as the model for going forward, I think if we don't have elected officials who um, uphold and support the Constitution, if any time an election doesn't go their way, they will say it was rigged, then what have we got? Then we don't have a functioning government anymore. And so it is, I think, deeply terrifying to, to so many people. And you know why, why this issue as opposed to all those other ones, right? Around uh, reproductive rights, around you know, LGBTQ rights. Certainly that's the reason why my wife and I don't live in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. That is why. I mean, we, we have family there and they have wanted us to live there. Like, why would we live there when in Vermont, we and our children have so many more rights and protections, right? So why is it this? I think people really do feel that democracy itself is, is on a precipice and as terrifying, terrifying. How concerned are you about the threat of fascism, neo-Nazism, white nationalism in America, particularly as you have this family connection with the Holocaust in your gut? Uh, yeah. How does it, what do you feel is happening yeah. in America? You know, at, at the, at the risk of sounding hyperbolic, um, I think about it all the time. And, you know, I said a lot on the campaign trail, and I know a lot of people, this resonated with them, which is democracies don't fail overnight. Countries don't become autocratic or fascist overnight. It happens little by little, right? As norms are eroded, as rights are taken away, as, um, you know, democratic ideals are upended. And we are seeing that. When you see that the, the playbook that Trump was going to use in this election was put into play months before the votes were ever cast, right? You've got Steve Bannon saying, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to deny the election and we're just going to keep saying it over and over and over again, right? And now we see across the nation in these primary contests, the same kind of conversations happening. And so I don't think you can be an engaged citizen right now and not think that we are sliding towards a place where the, the, the democracy is not functioning anymore. And so I, I don't let that fear um, drive me away from the news. I know a lot of people are, like even some of the, the people that, that I really look up to in my life are like, you know what, I can't read the news anymore. I can't engage, it scares me so much. For me, it's about being clear-eyed and also saying, this is a time when I need to be not turning away. I need all of us who have the energy, who have the strength to be able to see it for what it is and not be paralyzed by it. That's my greatest fear, actually, is that people will become paralyzed because it seems too big to take on. So and, what do yeah. you think that you can do if you are elected Vermont's lone congressperson to stand up to this? Right. Well, so I think about this a lot because I, I am one person, but the reason why I am drawn to legislative jobs 
is because I love teams. I love building coalitions. I like trying to figure out how we, even when we disagree on some things can come together on others. And, you know, I think about how we in the legislature here in Vermont, uh, especially in the, in the first year of the pandemic, when we all met together in uh, the rules committee, when we met with the governor, there wasn't, it wasn't Republican Democrat. It was like, how do we keep Vermonters safe? And there were bumps along the way, but I would say most folks feel like we handled it really well. And so for me, thinking about how do you figure out where there is agreement and overlap and really cultivate those relationships? And, and I said uh, on election night, and this, I keep coming back to that, it's not a politics at its best is not about connections. It's about relationships. And I have a good relationship with Joe Benning. I have a good relationship with Randy Brock. We disagree on a lot of things. These are Republican states. These senators. are Republican. And with Peg Flory, who's a Republican from Rutland, who endorsed me. But bottom line, they know that I am a good person. So I'm trying to take that same model of people seeing me as someone championing Vermonters. You know, I ran on uh, a campaign of, you know, pro-worker, pro-labor, thinking about rural Vermont, what it needs, thinking about, you know, how can I as one lone person be effective? And the only way that you can be effective as one lone person, I think, is to build those relationships. And it's something that I'm very good at. And I don't, I mean, I get this question all the time. How do you know you'll be effective, right? Essentially, my, you know, a lot of people on the campaign trail said that. And I was like, I don't, none of us know. We are in uncharted territory right now. We don't know what's going to happen in the midterms. We don't know what's going to happen with this democracy. All I know is I'm going to use the skills and the expertise and the experience that I've had for years to try to do a good job. And if I can't do a good job, then I will assess. I don't know. Uh, what the formula will be. But I do know that so much of getting work done in, in a political arena is about relationships. I'm very good at building those relationships. Talk about your position on abortion rights, your history with the issue here in Vermont, and specifically what your view is. This is, for me, um, a really fundamental rights issue that this is a decision that should be made uh, by a woman in, in consultation with um, her doctor and in consultation with her family. And the state should not be um, involved in, in that decision-making. It, it is so clear to me that if people understood, like truly understood how common it is for um, women to uh, have an abortion, right? Somewhere between a quarter and a third of all women um, make that decision for, for their health, for, the, for the, the fetus's health, for, you know, for decisions that are fundamentally healthcare decisions. I think that there would be very different discussions happening, but there's this collective denial, I feel like, um, in some of the opponents um, to, to reproductive rights and I often say to constituents when they are, um, this is an issue where people will scream at you. People will call you up and say horrible things and email. And I always say to them, given the statistics, I assume that your sister, your mother, your aunt, your neighbor, your best friend's wife, somebody in your life has had an abortion. And I need you to think about how what you're saying to me 
is actually um, an onslaught on on their you know their rights, their uh, emotional health. And so there's so I always come at it from that when I'm trying to talk to people about it who clearly disagree with me. And the other piece is, don't we want people to have liberty over their own bodies? And I, you know, this is a place where I, um, I do disagree with um, my opponent on this issue. Um, it was, it was clear to me uh, that he does not fully support a woman's right to choose. And, and for me, that is um, absolutely fundamental, uh, a fundamental right that I think women in Vermont um, have had and will continue to have because of the work that we've done. And I think it's incredibly important. And just to be clear, um, your opponent, uh, Leah Madden, who uh, has won the Republican primary, told us on the Vermont conversation last week that he was pro-choice until 24 weeks when he believed it was the state's uh, prerogative, what should happen. How do you respond to that specific caveat that he has introduced? Well, I think it's arbitrary, and I think it's not really based in any kind of um, of science. Uh, here's here's the piece, okay? And I'm gonna I'm gonna answer you by illustrating something that happened to me some years ago when we were first passing the codification of Roe v. Wade here in Vermont. Somebody approached me at town meeting in Vermont, and he did what many anti-choice um, activists do, which is that he, he stuck uh, pictures of an aborted fetus in my face, right? These, these huge eight by 10 glossies. And he said, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? You know, and I, t I, I paused and I looked at him, I said, I don't know what to think. I don't know any information about this woman, this family, this you know, fetus, whether it was viable, what what the issue was. You have taken a picture completely out of context, completely out of the narrative of this woman and her family's life. I said, I can't possibly tell you what I think about it. What I do know is whatever decision that was made was not an easy decision for that woman or her family. And that it is fundamental to who we are as human beings for, for a woman and her healthcare provider to be able to make those decisions and not have the state making that decision. And I just, um, you know, I, I know that that my opponent did say some things at a forum in, in Ludlow on the campaign trail that gave me pause about um, his uh, really belief in, in choice. And I just think that is not the role of the state. We should be having women doctors and their families making these decisions. Um, what is your position on gun rights? And in Congress, um, you may have the opportunity to vote on federal laws surrounding. And of course, there was mm -hmm. a compromise, one of the first yeah. gun rights provisions passed earlier this year, which signaled to some that perhaps there was a crack in a wall that has been almost unscalable until now. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what do you think you can do to advance the discussion on gun yeah. rights? I was very um, excited to see, uh, it's been you know, a quarter of a century since we've had any movement on this in, um, in Congress. So that's very exciting. Uh, certainly not uh, as, as far as, as many people, myself included, would like to go. But when you say you think there, is a, a, there might be a crack, I think there is a crack. And I heard it while I was door knocking here in Vermont, actually. People would say, 
you know, they would lead with, I am a gun owner. I support the second amendment. I have always been a strong supporter of, of firearms rights. Um, and they would say, however, they said, what we're seeing right now is not normal. And so I, even among voters here in Vermont who are gun owners, I hear this sense of it is not normal for us to be worried about dropping our kids off at school. It is not normal for us to be worried about whether we're in a public place and we're going to be the victim of, of gun violence. And so the fact that we passed red flag laws here in Vermont, um, the sky didn't fall, um, you know, the fact that more and more people actually are talking about how we in Vermont are an outlier on firearms in terms of suicides here in Vermont and how it impacts a lot of um, you know, middle-aged and older men here in Vermont, I feel like there's an opportunity for us to talk about um, health more globally and how does the issue of um, you know, preventing gun violence fit into the larger conversation about, about health. And I haven't seen that um, shift in years. And so I do feel like there's an opportunity now and I will be um, a, a full throated supporter of sensible gun laws in Vermont, just like I have been here in Vermont. And, you know, I think it's often posed in Vermont, well, do you support the second amendment or do you support uh, you know, sensible gun laws. And, and I both, I, of course I support the second amendment. We, we have a strong uh, hunting culture here in Vermont. We, you know, we have that right guaranteed in the constitution, but I think similarly to the way that I think what I'm hearing uh, among Vermonters around being fearful about where we are as a democracy, I'm hearing the same thing around the issue of guns that it is not normal for kindergartners and first graders to have to worry about um, having gun safety drills in school. And that how do we uh, really put some, um, some restrictions on that, that make good sense and keep people feeling, feeling safe and secure? You've had uh, an experience that almost no one has in our state, which is that you've been going around the state from top to bottom and just hearing what people think in unrecorded, candid conversations. And yeah. I often think people don't appreciate what it means to be a statewide candidate that you hear these things that you wouldn't necessarily hear. So what do you know now that you didn't really know or appreciate when you began this race as a result of your travels? Yeah, I really appreciate that question because it is a gift, David. It is running for office at any level is really hard, right? I just wanna acknowledge all the people out there who are select board members, school board members, like running for office and putting yourself out there is hard. Running statewide is also incredibly difficult, but it gives you this insight into what people are thinking and feeling. And a lot of the stuff I heard um, was um, what we suspected, because um, we had heard it within the state house, like people are very anxious about housing here in Vermont and shortage of housing. Uh, lots of people concerned about the workforce crisis and about climate change and healthcare costs, all of those things um, that were not, were not surprises, um, but it's always good to know in terms of you know, different communities, how, how those issues impact each community. The thing that surprised me the most were the number of Vermonters who said some version of, I wanna be able to talk to my neighbors again that even a few years ago, I felt like I could talk to my neighbor even though they were a Republican or I could talk to my neighbor even though they were a Democrat. 
And now they feel like something, some community sense of connection has been shattered by um, four years of the Trump administration and then the January uh, 6th insurrection. And I was not expecting that, that people being so um, really vulnerable with me and saying, I felt differently about my community even a few years ago, and I don't know how to get back to a place where I feel safe talking with a neighbor. And that's just devastating to hear, right? Especially here in Vermont, where if it can't happen in Vermont, where can it happen? We're, we're a small state. Well, geographically, we're a small state in terms of the number of people we have. We all seem to have two or three degrees of separation. But that really concerned me. And, you know, the flip side of that was a sense of hope. People are acknowledging it, right? To, that the first step is to say it out loud and say, I don't like this. I don't know how to get back to, to a place where we were before. And, um, but that people want that. And that makes me feel like there's an opportunity here for us to, on, on the town and, and city and community level, to perhaps have more structured conversations. And I don't even mean around political issues in town. So what I mean is, uh, so there's an org there are two different organizations that I'm so intrigued by. One is called Living Room Conversations that was started by uh, one of the people who founded moveon.org. And she, um, Joan Blades, she uh, wanted a structured uh, set of instructions essentially for people to be able to talk with their neighbors about, about different things. So Living Room Conversations and the other is called Braver Angels. If we can't even uh, you know, talk about an issue in the abstract with each other and not have it devolve into to name calling. How are we ever going to, to govern ourselves? And I mentioned this to folks um, at the Vermont League of Cities and Towns last year, and I'm gonna follow up with them, that I think talking to select board members and school board members on this campaign, I'm hearing the same things. They feel like the tenor of meetings have changed. The sense of distrust has changed in the last few years, and that's, really disconcerting and also it's an opportunity for us to be clear-eyed about the challenges ahead of us and so those were some surprises that i heard while i was traveling okay well we're gonna have to leave it there uh, senator becca ballant i want to thank you for joining us again on the vermont conversation always a pleasure